Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. This week, I speak with the architects Kevin Carmody and Andy Quark, who founded their eponymous practice in 2006 after having met while working at David Chipperfield Architects. Their work tends to be pared back and restrained, featuring monolithic forms with a minimal material palette, but it belies a kind of warmth and humanism that often registers on the surfaces of their projects, be it through the evidence of their making or through their weathering and patination. And in the interview, we explore in different ways this idea of the depth of meaning in the surfaces of their work. There's also a strong awareness of performance in Carmody Gork's projects, which have involved briefs for temporary dining spaces, art exhibitions, and even theaters, these intensely social environments where people go to see and be seen. And as Andy and Kevin explain, early on in their practice, these projects became like little anthropological studies for them to hone and refine their intuitions about the relationships between atmosphere, emotion, and human behavior. In addition to the pavilions and more short-lived projects that helped Kevin and Andy develop their practice, they were also designing significant memorials, like the one to the victims of London's July 7th terrorist attacks, that are meant to last in perpetuity. And so we began our conversation by exploring the relationships that Kevin and Andy see between their temporary and permanent works. We recorded this conversation in Farringdon at Carmody Gork's office in January of 2023, And just as a side note, there was annoyingly a disc error with Andy's mic, so I've had to resort to a slightly lower quality backup audio for his end of the conversation. Anyways, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. What I thought we could do is begin with this specific image, um, which seems to act as a kind of touchstone for your practice. And it's an image of the architect Edwin Lutyens walking away from a memorial he designed. It's a cenotaph for the victims of the First World War. And as you present it, this particular version of the cenotaph is a temporary one. It's made of timber and chicken wire and plaster. It's a model. Why is this image so charged for you? Why is it so relevant to your practice? Uh, I think that's a, a great question. The uh, the image we found as part of our research for a project that we were doing for the 7th of July memorial. Um, and it's an unusual photograph because it shows the architect and the project, but also the people that in the middle ground, the throng, the crowd, who are trying to make sense of the work. So. It raises questions about for whom we are designing the building. I think it raises an interesting question about a sort of assumed paradox that, you know, this this idea of permanence should be brought into question. And that this is a a sort of one-to-one model, a test of sorts, um, for, uh, to, to test the expectant need for a a permanently physical nexus to make sense of our times. Uh, so the story goes that Edwin Lutyens designed this and built this in only 19 days from, from the commission of the first sketch to the, to the built reality. And I think, you know, this, this idea of working fast and working slow, having different sort of gears of sort of design and execution has has been quite relevant to the, certainly the early stages of when we were making work. I think this tension between what is temporary and what's permanent characterizes a lot of the work that you do as a practice. For me, what's interesting about trying to find our way to the middle of these two extremes is that in either case, there's a sense of intense focus an awareness of the passing of time and an appreciation for, in some sense, the fragility <laughs> of an instant or a moment. I mean, if we look at Studio East Dining, for example, 
It's a very rarefied event. It's a dinner, <laughs> or a series of dinners. And participants in that project are aware that it's not going to last. <laughs> it's going to be over, and once it's done, it's never coming back. And there's something frivolous and maybe insensitive about comparing that feeling to the feeling one is encountering when standing in a memorial. <laughs> but at the same time, it is kind of the same. I wonder for you what kind of relationships you see between these two extremes, between the memorial and the pavilion. I think it's very interesting that in the early part of our practice, um, some 18 months in, we were actually designing those two projects, the 7 July Memorial and Studio East, um, at the same time, thinking about these, these challenges and the very different responsibilities of, of two projects, really at extremes of design life in that way. Um, I think the word you've hit on there, fragility, is a really, really important one um, in how we think about architecture. I think perhaps there was this aspiration, this desire of previous generations of architects to tend towards permanence as being more important. We think very carefully as a practice about um, the purposefulness of the project for that amount of time. If it is only for several days, how do we, in, in the fact of Studio East, where the entire structure was, was borrowed, rented, um, and returned to be reused for something else rather than um, thrown away or you know, um, recycled. So I, I think those, those value judgments you bring to architecture are deeply embedded in a consideration of what architecture's responsibility is over, over time. So that's the first. The, the second is, is perhaps, again, back to that Lutjens image, is, is that our early projects really revealed that architecture has the ability to, to leave a very long-lasting impression on the visitor. And that can happen in a very sh short way, in, in a project that is only there for a matter of days, but in fact, um, the memory of that can be much longer. I mean, it's so, it was so beautiful to discover the etymology of that word, pavilion, which I learned through researching your work, that it is derived from the French word papillon, as you say, that um, these are butterflies. Yeah. <laughs> In, in the context of other work you've done. I think something else that's interesting to dwell on a bit with regards to the pavilion as a, a type of architectural project is its utility on different levels. The pavilion has a certain usefulness in terms of, at a kind of crass and superficial level, raising the property values of a particular site. There's also this really rich tradition of pavilions in architecture uh, as a means of very quickly and uh, sketchily foreshadowing certain attitudes in design or certain sensibilities or certain ambitions that may be more difficult to actualize through a permanent project. There's an essay that Ellis Woodman's written in your El Croquis magazine um, and he's referencing people like Mies and Lily Reek's Silk Pavilion, which foreshadowed the Tugendhat House. Um, the Pavilion, Pavillon d'Esprit Nouveau by Corbusier, which previewed domestic ideals that would manifest in later projects. There's this interest in to what extent the pavilion is able to transfer ideas between projects from these temporary projects to these more permanent ones. And I think for me, what's most exciting about these examples is that the real utility of the pavilion is to make sense of the contemporary, to make sense of the moment we're living in. And so I wondered if you could help me work through this idea of the utility of the pavilion and maybe talk a bit about ideas that you feel you're working through with your temporary schemes, and to what extent those ideas start to take on uh, a more permanent place in longer-term work. You touched on this, the, the trap of the pavilion in 
in some senses a cynical kind of reading of it is it is it sort of um, is uh, this kind of sidebar of raising land values mm -hmm. and you know it's personally something I'm not particularly interested in and yet to work within a system to enable a project to find a cultural question in a project is fascinating so the idea of the pavilion on in one sense is a sort of program less project it's a container that need not contain anything in one sense so it it it's a pure expression of a kind of architectural idea of sorts and yet where these pavilions in the early part of our practice really helped us is that reflection and making go so closely hand in hand they're built at great speed the the distance from thinking to making from thinking to drawing to making is is so close coupled so what we found is that they become sort of models, one-to-one -one models or, or prototypes for other, other embryonic ideas in other projects. And, and that also they're necessarily close coupled, so close coupled in the way in which you need to work as a, as a designer, as a practitioner with the makers and also the, the importance of the idea going beyond the hardware of the architecture and much more just as importantly about the software of the architecture. So, so having made an enclosure for the filling station, um, that, <clears throat> that um, is so closely supported by an idea of hospitality with with one of our very early uh, um, uh, early collaborators, uh, Bistrotech, where they taught us so much about hospitality and 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 being like minded with the people that are enjoying the purpose of the building. So, in a in a sense, you know, aesthetics aside, architecture aside, they they become sort of anthropological experiments. Really, how people respond emotionally to the to the being in the presence of 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 a construction mm. albeit very very briefly you know they they you know these are not projects that can sort of formalize behavior they live or die to whether people enjoy being in the presence of them so that that was a great revelation to us building these experimental projects i i don't think for example, you could make translations or speculations when you're making a project out of temporary works material that this is going to inform potentially a way of building a permanent building. And yet, and yet, you know, uh, elements from the filling station were used in the spirit of complete thrift and when we made the Maggie Centre we were given a budget of less than a terrace house extension. And even before that there was an exhibition which has an uncanny resemblance at least in its curved geometry to the filling station. This was about drawing and fashion. Remind me of the name of that. Drawing fashion. Drawing fashion. <laughs> the materials were different. It wasn't fiberglass. It was paper I think. Yeah. And this, this kind of more direct formal lineage has been traced often uh, in other people's readings of your work as well. And even the resemblance of Studio East Dining um, formally as a kind of assemblage of these rectilinear volumes with different orientations out mm -hmm. to different views to the Windermere Jetty Museum. But there's something, there's something else I think that's maybe more interesting to focus on with you. If we continued just looking for a moment at the filling station, it became a real site of orientation for this emerging neighborhood in the city. At the same time, there is a sense of disorientation at play once one is inside of it or once one is near it. And the reason I say that is because a lot of your projects have a kind of 
blankness to them. There's often an absence of openings, and when they are there, they are significant apertures. I kind of think of a lot of your work as being like cameras. If we look at the early forms of those devices, the way they very decisively let light in and focus perspectives. And so maybe if we stay on this point about orientation, we could talk about the Blind Light project you developed with the artist, the sculptor Antonique Wormley, which is entirely about disorientation in a way, or one's own reorientation to one's experience. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really interesting connection you've made. Um, um, and, I, and I think, look, um, we, were, um, we were very um, lucky to work with Anthony on a number of projects, um, uh, both at his studio and, and in, um, in the case of Blind Light, um, collaborating on a pavilion. Obviously, the, the kind of artistic idea of, of that pavilion is, is very much Anthony's work, but as architects we've kind of collaborated in a way to, to um, almost make architecture disappear. Um, we, the, the conception of uh, as a piece of art um, is, is a large glass, um, uh, large glass tank sitting within the Hayward Gallery in its first installation, um, as we see it here. Um, and we worked very hard to kind of um, think about the, um, the experience that Anthony set out in the brief of it, which was he, he wanted to walk into a, to a cloud, um, or the feeling of walking into a cloud. Now, um, that's not just dry ice, that's um, a cloud is, is suspended water droplets at the very right temperature and pressure um, balance to keep them suspended in air. Um, uh, and, and indeed, um, a cloud being much closer to the, to the sun than we are here on Earth would also be much, much brighter, six times brighter than it would be on Earth. So we, we have this, this tank that holds this experience of walking into a cloud. And our, our observation in working with Anthony on the, on the project, which was a highly technical one to get this coordinated into um, the Hayward Gallery, but it was, was to kind of then observe how that worked. And as you walked in as an individual, sort of the singular experience of this, one is um, immediately frozen to the spot, and most people describe this, where your eyes are open, but because you can't see anything in front of you, your brain is telling your feet not to move. And it's a real sense of disorientation, I would say, and, and, and a sense that your first reaction is to kind of raise your hands and try and find your way to a point of orientation, which indeed is the pavilion of glass. And you'll find most people generally move to find a point of you know, orientation in, in one's Cartesian sense of space, because all of those um, senses are lost. Um, the second reading of it, which is a really much more social one, is one that you, you suddenly stand back from this experience and you are able to observe others immersed within the experience. And in fact, the reading of that is, is, is a collective one, a shared one, uh, a sense that, that um, suddenly you realize that, that one can be immersed in it, but there's a social experience that's just as important here in seeing other people engage with it. It's interesting that this process of observation you're describing is identical to the one um, you embark on when you observe the way people use your other pavilions. And I mean, this is in a way a, a part of that group of projects, but it's at its most extremely ephemeral, that this, the medium itself is literally vapor. Um, and this sense of acute anthropology <laughs> is also so palpable when we look at images of the work where we see human figures navigating their way through the mist <laughs> inside this box. I think also what's intriguing is that it's an intensely physical experience. You know, we are, we are physical beings. Um, we're engaging with, with physical stuff all around, enveloping our body, in this case, this, this kind of freezing cold mist. And in 
that transaction of physical experience where you're losing all your sense of your Cartesian coordinates of the world. You're trying to make sense of that and reorientate yourself. And when other people within the mist are coming towards you, they're sort of coming in and out of focus. So you're at once more intensely aware of your own physical presence within the world and simultaneously aware of others physical. So it's an intentionally physical experience, but an, an intensely social experience mm. within this kind of gallery. And I just, I feel like that sensation or that phenomenon seems to apply to a lot of the work you do in different ways, that there is this heightening of awareness of the the object or individual that is housed, <laughs> that is enveloped, that is contained by the work. I mean, Kevin, as you're talking, I'm looking at you in front of a giant model of um, another project that was developed along the same, around the same time that um, Blind Light was, and that's the Regent's Place Pavilion behind you, which is in a way also this very um, cloud-like structure. It's hundreds of slender stainless steel columns which as I'm looking at you now <laughs> throw you into very sharp relief mm. it's the same with the Maggie Center or the filling station surfaces these very repetitive translucent scallop surfaces which when anyone stands in front of or within it they become somehow more, <laughs> more than they were in the context of the chaos of the urban environment around them, uh, more than they are in the context of the kind of quotidian trappings of domestic interiors. When you strip that all away, when you reduce that, something happens that's very interesting. And I think it's the same if we move now you know, to another box you've designed another container for experience to the Hill House project, which in the case of that work adds a new layer of encounter, a, new, a newly charged experience to the house that it's covering. Which is uh, Charles Rennie Mackintosh's residential masterpiece. It's a rather, rather incredible uh, house that was built in 1902 to 1904, um, one of the most radical buildings of the early 20, 20th century, um, built by a young architect that was uh, fusing this idea of tradition and invention into one architectural form. Um, it's a rather magical house. It takes its it takes its um, success and its ultimate failure from fusing this amalgamation of forms and quotations in one material, this cement render, which has failed catastrophically and has uh, has left the Hill House with only a few years left um, and some difficult decisions facing the custodians of this cultural artefact, the, the National Trust for Scotland. When we got involved, we, um, we said that we didn't think that this was an entirely physical or practical problem of getting the right constructional solution to the house, doing its repair and, and you know, leaving it to kind of survive for um, you know tens or hundreds of more years um, it's not that obvious what we do to correct those constructional mistakes it's not just a practical problem after all it's a question of why we conserve our built heritage so what we found interesting about the opportunity to do a project at the Hill House to, to put this box that 
was highly unusual, made out of unprecedented forms of construction and materials. Uh, it's, it's sheathed in 40 odd million links of stainless steel chain, chain mail, something that you wouldn't ordinarily make a building from. So it's a very sort of liberal use of materials from perhaps other industries or other material cultures. And yet it creates this perfect drying room. So it's first and foremost a conservation-led project. It allows the hill house to dry out over a period of time. The chainmail allows the wind to whistle through uh, and the rain to kind of slow down as it's kind of passing through. It also, so it, it, it stops the clock and halts the decay and allows the National Trust for Scotland to buy some time. So there's this idea of timefulness embedded in the solution. And at the same time, what we find just as interesting, if not more interesting, is the idea that the general public, the visitors can be brought into proximity with the conservation activities. The, there is a series of walkways that are threaded, an architectural promenade that's threaded into the stanchions of uh, the uprights that hold the box, the roof box aloft. Um, and that means that visitors to the Hill House can have an altogether different experience of architecture. You can have a roofer's eye view of Charles Rennie Mackintosh's Hill House. So you can experience architecture in a different way. Um, we've, we've almost built the project with oil rigging technology and sheathed in a, in a material that gives a, a, a semi-protective veil. So we have a visual aspect to it, as well as a performative act, aspect to, to it, as a, and, a, and a preservation aspect to it. But when we bring the visitors into proximity with those conservation repairs, we can start to engage them in the questions of how and more fundamentally why we should conserve our built heritage. So it's a sort of paradoxical project because it's a temporary museum mm. <laughs> in a way. It's a field hospital. I've been to that project too. <laughs> and for me, what was so in a way familiar about it in terms of understanding it in the context of other projects of yours was its surface. Again, that first of all, there seems to be this overriding interest in a particular material. There is a lot of steel and stainless steel and galvanized steel in the office, which is (laughs) it's true, no? (laughs) Which, in a way, this is this is sounding superficial, but I just want to I want to follow it for a moment because I think surface is so important with any any architectural project, but in particular, it seems like with this office, there is a real concentrated interest in the surface of things. Um, The surfaces are usually taut. And monolithic, there's often a singular material treatment of the surface. And yet the surface becomes... um, a kind of ledger. It's a kind of heightening element in a lot of the work. In its starkness, the foreground becomes so much more in some ways. So I think also, I mean, it's a curtain <laughs> in the case of the Hill House. Um, and it I think opens. it never opens. <laughs> and I think wh- where I'm going with this is. Um, towards what I found to be a particularly beautiful interpretation by the critic Edward Heathcote about the work, where he brings to me quite intuitively and in a way that's kind of risky but um, ultimately rewarding the writer Oscar Wilde into the equation. He's, first of all, writing in specific relation to the July 7th memorial and its surface, which of course 
is a sand cast stainless steel mm. columns or stellas are referred to. Mm. And on the surface of the columns, we read the turbulence mm. of the process of casting. But then occasionally, there have been incidences of graffiti. Mm. And Heathcote is drawn to this moment where we have this pristine, seemingly pristine surface, which is um, culturally complicated, <laughs> but in any case, extremely deep in the end. Um, the surface becomes a means through which we can start to understand the project on a very deep level. And this is, this is Heathcote's argument. He's, he's quoting Oscar Wilde, who once said that it is only shallow people who do not judge by appearances. The true mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. And it also reminds me of um, uh, one of my favorite poets, John Ashbery, who has this poem, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror. And the most resonant line in that poem is simply the assertion that the surface is what's there. He's reading so much into the, the infinitely thin surface of the mirror. The reason I'm doing this, <laughs> the reason I'm bringing this up, is because there's something exciting about finding depth on the surface of things. And there's also something, I guess, to go back to this idea of the curtain, very theatrical about it as well. Heathcote, in the same article, brings up theater and mentions a certain discomfort um, he sensed in you when he started to follow that route in terms of understanding your work. I wonder, how do you feel about sitting next to this reading of, of your work, exhibiting a depth through its surface? I think this, this idea of thinness on one hand is a sort of pragmatism, but you know, of, of using thrift that perhaps began in this discipline of early projects. But, but it's also an interesting, um, I think it's a contemporary sort of challenge of, of buildings of how to, you know, now we've, we've sort of disassembled through lots of good reasons, the, the, the monolithic way of, kind of traditional construction by disassembling that and making a more kind of thermally performative envelope. You know, we have to consider the making the wall in a different way. And, and yet, I think we rather enjoy that discipline of making the most with the least, this thinness, this, you know, the, almost, you know, almost like Renaissance facades that present themselves as photographs. Mm -hmm. uh, in one of our um, teaching units, we, we looked at these, these sublime big box distribution warehouse, which, which are, it's, their architectures are kind of microns thin. And, you know, there's a, there's a certain, there's a certain, um, it's a very punctual problem, I think, this, this idea of thinness and how we make the most from, from, from the least. You know, that there, there are projects like Windermere that really exploit thinness as a, as a discipline and take, and, uh, you know, almost in a knowing way, fast forward the appearance of those natural metal copper buildings. Fast forward their lifespan to give those buildings, to register the passage of time mm. and, and the maker's marks and the use and the misuse, the entropy and the weathering um, at a sort of, um, uh, you know, in, in, in several microns thick, we, we have a chemical reaction that, that, that is changing the appearance of the building, you know, but in a very, very thin way, but having, a, having an almost volumetric 
effect mm. on the reading of these projects and how they register themselves as objects in this very beautiful landscape in very different ways over time. And and then so so this idea of the pristine and the perfect, I think has gone very much out you know, it, it's not so much in focus as it perhaps was on the very early projects, mm. you know, fifteen or so years ago where where, you know, they were a little bit smoother, a bit more hermetic and and less engaged with projects less influenced by some of the projects that we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. I mean, listeners might want to look at the the subterranean pool in Limerick as an example of that, yeah. that early kind of pristine or perfection that the office seemed to be pursuing. But just, you're talking about Windermere, and um, in case listeners might not be familiar with that project, this is um, the Windermere Jetty Museum in the Lake District, which recently completed... Um, it's a house for boats. Yeah. Um, the exhibition of various boats. There's a wet dock as well incorporated into it, yeah. and it has this tent-like skin of pre-oxidized copper with face-fixed brass screws. And there's a there's a promise there that's being made on your behalf of the fact that this surface will weather in uncontrollable ways, depending on the orientation of the facades, the, depending on. Um, the accumulation of water and these exposed um, um, screws, um, that there'll be a kind of imperfection over time? It's deliberately imperfect from day one. As, as I might add, is the 7th of July memorial. You know, we're taking an archetypal perfect material from the city, stainless steel, you know, to, it is the sort of go-to material of kind of neoliberal, you know, monuments to commercial architecture, mm. stainless steel. Mm-hmm. And yet we've transformed the material reading of that by casting it in a sandbox. Because of this archaic process of casting, there is a a volatility and unpredictability of the surface of each of these four faces of this quadratic tall form. They look very different. They look deliberately uncommercial. They look deliberately uh, transfigured from the material that you expect mm-hmm. To take that for so so much so in fact that that most people are unsure what the material is, yeah. and and I think that maybe picks up another line of discussion in response to surface, which is I think I think we're taking perhaps materials that exist within construction, whether it be the mesh or or the cast stainless steel Andy's just described, or even the copper in Windermere, and and trying to imbue a kind of level of humanity into it. And particularly in the 7 July Memorial, where we, where we conceive of this material being so unusual that um, if you visit now, you will find that it, the, the, the stellar standing columns, standing um, um, elements are, are, are stained with people's, the oils from people's skin touching them all at eye level. And, and so they're, they're so engaging that they're, they're drawing in a kind of physical interaction with the visitor. And that's actually wearing and changing over time and, and interacting with, with the physical substance of the building. And, and, and in Windermere, we talked at length about the idea that, um, and Andy talked about the kind of, you know, the microns, the thinness of that, but it's folded to give it strength, but it's folded in a way, and we were looking to brilliant precedents like Alto's Pensions Institute, that where, where, where the material is, is folded in such a way, even though it's a sheet, it could almost be made out of ingots of the material. It could be something that would be the size that someone could pick up each piece that you see in relief in that material. And, and somehow there's a, there's a humanity to the scale, there's a humanity to its, the fact that that material then, as you say, wears. Mm-hmm. through its use and its misuse 
over time, um, and, and that it continues to register life in its surface, mm. despite its thinness. Mm. I'm glad you brought up uh, Alto's Pensions Institute in Finland. It's obviously um, a perfect example of the way in which this facade, which is seemingly monolithic and homogenous, uh, a kind of poker face to the building, um, has a life of its own in a way, has the world happened to it, <laughs> mm -hmm. becomes tarnished, becomes in some way soiled. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's interesting, I never really thought of the work as wanting to be tarnished, but in fact over time inevitably it will. And in a way the more austere the treatment of these surfaces, the more visible their blemishes become. I, I think from, you know, even from the Studio East Dining project, if you, you know, I mean, the, pur the purpose of, of that is to almost not notice it to a certain extent, because if you're, if you're kind of more conscious of the architecture than, than the dinner that you're having with your friends or, or family, then somehow we've got the emphasis of architecture wrong. You know, a good restaurant is to be um, uh, remembered for, for different things. But if you, if you were to have looked at that, project close up it's it's complete with imperfections it, it's like putting an old pair of jeans on to go out for a dinner not putting a dinner jacket on it's you know the the walls are made from scaffolding boards with boot prints on uh, from previous uses that the heat shrink wrap material is uh, or, or that makes the umbrella forms of the roof are all laid bare you know there's no there's no there's it's not a project with three coats of varnish on and I, I think ever since that project you know this this idea of the the makeshift and 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 the provisional and those things that those projects that don't rely on three coats of varnish and are more tolerant and have to rely on bigger things at stake on how they reach out in their forms or their spaces to the wider world, or they they give hospitality, shelter and comfort to their occupants. I, I think I think that the projects are less concerned with that pristineness or the tautness that 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 you might have talked about. I'm more, I'm more interested in the registrations of time, entropy, use, misuse. And, and you know, once, once we throw the keys to the, the client mm. on a completion of a building, it's a framework for lots of experiences that we might have predicted, but might not have predicted and, you know, to use your analogy, uh, analogy of performance or the theatre again, you know, some of the projects are these kind of scenic edicules of the city, like the filling station, this this space that turns its back on a certain aspect of the city to reveal a, a new and forgotten or forgotten aspect of the city. But in the sense that these are, these create interpretive, interpretive uh, readings of the wider world is more interesting than architecture that makes an instructive way to appreciate itself. an option studio at Harvard at the GSD which is called an incomplete performance and as you say um, as you both write we'll explore the double meaning of performance that being working between the short-lived act of theatrical performance and the environmental performance of long-lasting buildings and especially when I read the brief for the studio at Harvard I keep picturing Cedric Price's and John Lillowood's Fun Palace. Yeah. I think of this collapsing of 
performance in terms of spectacle that unfolds in the building with performance of the building as a technical object. And of course, the Fun Palace and Price were both precursors to or proponents of the high-tech movement. This movement in design and architecture, which really celebrated technical performance as a spectacle. And I think there's something much more nuanced or subtle at play that's a variation of this in your work. If we look at the Design Museum in Ghent and we think about this brick that you've developed, the Ghent brick, which in a way is a kind of performative equivalent. I mean, tell me more about your, your way into this dual nature of performance. Yeah, um, just to touch on separate price, mm. Jane Littlewood, first of all, I mean, I think the fascinating thing about that project is it, is it tried to forecast a way of making architecture that resisted it, a fixed image. Um, that's very difficult in architecture because at some point you've got to commit physically. I think it, it, it can't always be this kinetic diagram. And in fact, and in fact, when we bring to mind notions of the Pompidou, it very definitely has a very fixed image. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not, um, uh, but, but, but the idea of modes of production that continually invent and reinvent themselves is, I guess, a sort of Pricean idea of sorts embedded in the making of the brick for Ghent. It's to question our modes of uh, geographic and economic production of materials, of how we make or source materials. So the brick for the Ghent Design Museum is uh, it's a, on, on face value, it's, it's, it's a kind of regular white brick with some kind of sparkling elements, some unusual textures and surfaces embedded inside it. It's made exclusively from, um, rather than from virgin materials, from silica, from, from clay, from sand, it, uh, that you tear out of the earth and then bake with Russian gas. Uh, we have rethought fundamentally how we make a brick from first principles through waste stream materials that are sourced hyper-locally within the city. So we have done a sort of two-year research project about uh, making this brick, which has involved a conspiracy of circumstances from political uh, 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 levels of uh, Belgian government, we've got a, got a research grant from Circular Flanders, uh, support from the, the city, uh, support from our um, co-clients, the Design Museum Ghent and Sojent, our um, developer client. To, so, so with the conspiracy of all of those players working together, we can perhaps reinvent ways, modes of art, the production of our buildings. Um, and so instead of going to virgin materials, we've gone to waste processing plants where they mince up concrete buildings from Ghent, where they mince up porcelain toilets and car windscreens from Ghent, beer bottles from Ghent, you know. So there's this amalgam, this recipe that comes, I think 70% of, the, of the, the substance of the brick comes from things that have already been in other buildings or things so that and then and then it's bound together with a with a lime which um, which hardens over time it doesn't require baking uh, with 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 fuel so it so it's 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 lower energy it's about a third of the carbon used in a normal brick it's hyper local so it doesn't cost a lot to travel the materials so I think that, in a kind of Pricean way, you know, that, that idea of, you know, well, on face value, you look at the physical thing, 
but the backstory of all of the rethinking and re-engineering those modes of production behind the scenes to create this thing that is at the end physically inert it's a physical thing it's fixed in its image it will be what it will be and you take on face value as the as the visitor them to the museum or the passerby and it will conspire to build these 100,000 bricks or conspire to build this new building but you may engage with it or you may not engage with it you, it may be in the foreground of your experience of the understanding of the visit to the design museum rather like you're put in you know uh, precise focus when you go to an exhibition you're in the realm of being told how to interpret this thing but but more often than not it will exist as a thing in the street as part of your background to the city so i think we enjoy that duality of the the physical world becoming oscillating between the foreground and the background and things coming in and out of focus mm. I feel like the the performance of that material is a really interesting kind of jumping off point that you know the, the the world's in a different spot right now we've we've got to as as a generation lee architects now need to do the most with the least yeah and we're going to have to work with what we've already dug out of the earth as much as possible and it feels like the attitude through the last 50 years has been we can engineer the making of the construction of the materials we use in architecture to perform the way we need. In reality, the question might be a better one to say, how can we design our buildings to use materials in a better way so they perform? And that, that might be down to how we detail, how we, how we, as Andy said, are more tolerant about the, you know, the, the many hands that come together to make buildings to indeed conspire to, to make a piece of architecture. But it also, it also comes down to the discussion of what we make things from and what we should make things from in each place. And I think those are more fundamental questions at the moment for us. Kevin and Andy, thank you so much for your time. Really wonderful, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Scaffold is a podcast from the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Kevin and Andy. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.